This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, we ask them to read a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is the poet and translator Ariel Francisco, who published his debut collection, All My Heroes Are Broke, in 2017. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. I'm really excited. (laughs) So I'm excited, too. The poem you've chosen to read today is James Wright's poem, By a Lake in Minnesota. What drew you to this particular poem while you were looking through our archive? Yeah, uh, looking through the archive was just a ton of fun. So just typing in, you know, all the poets I admire and looking through all the poems that they've published in The New Yorker. And I I had forgotten about this James Wright poem, though it is in... uh, I think it's in The Branch Will Not Break, which is one of my favorite books, but it has so many good poems that even the good ones get buried amongst the other good ones. So it was uh, like finding something familiar that I had forgotten that I I really liked. So it was a joy to encounter it again in the archives. Great. Let's hear it. This is Ariel Francisco reading By a Lake in Minnesota by James Wright. By a Lake in Minnesota. Upshore from the cloud... The slow wail of country twilight. The spume of light falls into valleys full of roses. And below, out of the placid waters, two beavers, mother and child, wave out long ripples to the dust of dead leaves on the shore. And the moon walks, hunting for hidden dolphins behind the darkening combers of the ground. And downshore from the cloud, I stand, waiting for dark. Mm, I love that. That was By a Lake in Minnesota, written by James Wright, which was originally published in the September 17th, 1960 issue of the magazine. I love how it starts upshore and ends with this downshore. <laughs> yeah, that opening line is just bananas. Upshore from the cloud, <laughs> M-dash, that's, that's a great way to open I do love an M-dash, <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest. Back-to-back M-dashes. Yeah, you got to do it sometimes, uh, Emily Dickinson. Um, So tell me uh, what else drew you to this. I mean, it's interesting in contrast to the poem we're going to see by you because I feel like they're talking to each other in a funny way. Um, In part, this is a – is it a study of nature or is it nature as seen from the city, you know, that pastoral tradition? How do you think of it? It's almost an existential crisis for me, this kind of observation of, you know, these gigantic things, the sky and then, you know, twilight as a whale – 
and then sort of coming back down small to the beaver and then back out again to the moon walking. You know, it's like this breathing, this kind of huge, small, huge, and then the mm. smallest of all is, you know, the speaker standing in the dark at the end, just kind of under the weight of everything. It's kind of well, terrifying, but fantastic. <laughs> well, and he's waiting, as in waiting uh, for a train or something, but he's also feeling that weight. I love how you highlight that. Yeah, I mean, that's just the slow wail of country twilight. I mean, that's one of the, a great line. I want to <laughs> yeah. steal it uh, instantly. I mean, it feels very... American, if that makes sense. It yeah. feels like something someone might say, but at the same time, it's so lyrical and, and rooted in this kind of surrealism that Wright is invested in, especially around this time and right. moving from his book, St. Judas, a book I loved, because yeah. uh, it's a transition book, you know, yeah, yeah. and then uh, uh, The Branch Will Not Break, uh, which is just a few years later, as you mentioned, uh, and this poem is of that time, you know, those those incredible poems of nature and, you know, I have wasted my life, right. you know, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. kind of grand pronouncements that he, he it always returns to the eye yeah. for right. Yeah, and uh, this one in particular, I do, you know, that, that change he made from kind of those formal poems and then sort of throwing everything out and building this new kind of style. Um, and the eye coming so late, right? It's just I stand is the, I think, the only eye in this poem right there before the dark is, it's just great to, you know, to have him come into the poem finally just at the very end as, like, the smallest part of it. Well, and I wonder, uh, do you think of him as a poet of place, a poet of existential crisis? Are they the same for him? Um, I think they might be. I think he's definitely a, a poet of place. Not just that, but, you know, that, especially that lying in a hammock. I love teaching that poem to my students because that's just, it gets no more specific than that. That title, you know, tells yes. you so much. Even if you've never been there, you can't really uh, know it, but you can you can imagine it. Um, so in a literal sense, you know, he's always conjuring places that we know he's familiar with that we might not be, but we can be through the poem. And there's definitely always for me in his work, some kind of existential dread happening and it helps feel it when you can imagine the place that he's in, even if it's just like standing by a lake. Right. Yeah. I love that. I also feel like he's a poet invested, and even the title St. Judas plays with this kind of Christian iconography, and there's a kind of descent, ascent that is happening in these poems, you know, um, darkness, and, and right. these very uh, Manichaean, you know, like large, <laughs> dark and light, up and down, you know, like me and and no one, right, know, right. <laughs> or the God that is sort of conjure but not, and these, these beavers interest me. You know, he knows their mother and child. Right. Yeah. There's he, no question there. They're kind of this holy family almost. Yeah. Um, and I mean, maybe what's absent, you know, if the poem's kind of being written in that time for him to, you know, project that onto them is, is kind of a tiny detail that might get lost, but, uh, you know, probably hugely important to what he was going through in those times. I'm struck, too, by the, the shortness of the lines, which I, I was not quite this years old, but, you know, fairly recently, I remember listening to him read A Blessing, his famous poem of, see, you know, stopping and seeing these two horses which come up to him. Yeah. And he reads it incredibly slow, like every <laughs> word, line, you know, like, wow, it's so emphasized. Yeah. And I think that's partially that break he's having between these kind of more formal poems and even the subject matter of those, which were wonderful, but then really opening up the work and changing it. Um, these shorter lines, I think, really strike me, too. 
Yeah, they're um, they're tricky. I I fear the long line <laughs> in my own writing. So fear it. I, yeah, I, it's difficult to go. The closer you get to the margin, the I know kind of there's like a cat there that like swipes your hand, <laughs> like the cliff's edge, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I stay away from the margin of the page. I like I like the short lines, but but his short lines are incredible. Even you know, just looking at the shortest ones, full of roses on the shore of the ground, I stand pause waiting yeah. for dark like just how much they contain is really difficult to to try and accomplish i think well it makes you know this is perhaps obvious but it makes every word count yeah i mean he has that other poem about autumn comes to martin's ferry yeah, yeah, yeah. ohio and you know there's that amazing moment where it's like therefore <laughs> right? there's a line that says therefore it's in a poem <laughs> you know and i remember reading that and you know there's all sorts of questions of race in the poem. It's really wrestling with class and race in an interesting way. I think when I was much younger, I think I thought it was only troubling, but I think he's troubled. Right. And he's trying to write about it. I was like, therefore, that troubled me more than anything. (laughs) You know, like I had rules in my mind of what you could do and therefore as a line. Right. Or even, you know, of the ground as it is here and below, you know, but below is not just as we're saying, you know, a place. It's a state. Yeah, yeah. And I think understanding that therefore is a state and and below is a state and that he is trying to conjure them with the least words possible, I think is really a, a fruitful thing for us to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like a proclamation, you know, the the importance of what follows or what comes before, but just to have that small unit of language standing by itself is something. Are you comfortable with proclamations in poems? Uh yeah, I'm comfortable with most things in poems. They're hard to do. I mean, he's, you know, I've wasted my life is probably <laughs> one of the best ones. Um, but it's it's difficult to pull off the kind of, I don't know if it's a confidence or if it's an understanding of where it goes in the poem and, and what that does to a reader. To have it at the end is one thing, right? To have it in the middle and then might have the promise of like an answer, but not give the answer, you know? It can be tricky. I don't know how many proclamations I've made in my own poems. But. Uh, we're going to see in a minute, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I was interested in, and I was aware of this, uh, I was thinking about it when I was rereading, is how influenced by surrealism, but specifically Latin American surrealism and poets like Vallejo, yeah. who are, I think, really doing interesting things. Uh, how do you, do you think of that at all? Or, or how, how does this poem speak to that for you? Yeah, um, that's something that really interests me about James Wright, especially in that time, because that's when he was hanging out with Robert Bly and they were translating Vallejo and, and I think Lorca and Neruda and also trans, you know, all, kind of all those guys in the 60s. Um, and I I've, I had read those um, Vallejo, Lorca, uh, Neruda before I had sure. encountered uh, James Wright and, and Robert Bly. Uh, from my dad because he has, you know, all these books and he's very familiar with those guys. Um, so it's really interesting to see that relationship and to not know at the time that I read either that one had influenced the other and then to kind of c- come to that knowledge after and be like, oh, wow, and then go back and sort of, you know, put the two side by side or look at what he was translating during that time. Um, it's it's really, really interesting. And his translations of um, Herman Hesse, too, I think, are are really fantastic as well. Well, I mean, Lorca's all over this poem. Yeah. I mean, Lorca is able, I think, to do that. 
you know, those little ballads and these little songs that he's able to kind of conjure, not just nature, and he grew up in the country, you right. know, well, but in the country, and yet he's able to conjure so much uh, spiritual agony or, 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 or uh, national questions uh, through these this nature, and you can see uh, that influence, I think, here, and the delicacy, let's call right. it. Right, yeah. There's a real precision that Lorca has and a music. Yeah, Lorca's wild, man. I mean, his range, like, stylistically is the entire spectrum. <laughs> He's got those, you know, those long kind of ballads, but he also wrote, like, haiku and these very small lyric poems as well. Um, yeah, he's he's amazing, and it's it's just crazy to me to see him in in James Wright's poems, like, when that when that comes up. He's the man. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I think Lorca is one of the greats, um, partially because of the range, you know, and also because, uh, in a weird way, uh, you know, he was uh, of course, you know, executed and murdered right. by the Franco regime, and um, you realize that they read his poetry as political. All of those poems that could be read as apolitical right. in some way, they saw as deeply political and also, you know, they were homophobic and right. all yeah. these questions. But I, I, I think that's really interesting in this political moment we're in now, where how do you write a political poem and maybe you do it like Lorca does? You yeah. know? And another way to put it is, oh, we should be paying attention <laughs> that nature can be political, that writing about these songs, who you choose to write about. And I think that's one of the political parts of Lorca is he's choosing to write about this small, vulnerable folk or a cricket, or, you know, right, right. that's really powerful and, and subversive. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think of that, too, when we turn to your poem, uh, which I want to talk about in one second. But I, I wonder if how we make use and think about the political in this moment. Yeah. People will say that, you know, the the act alone of writing a poem in in such a world, right, especially in a world in a country that only really values material, th- you know, like, what are you doing that's making money for somebody else? If you're writing poetry in a world that only values that, that's political, right? Or, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I think I would agree with that <laughs> as well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, tackling specific subject matters can be really, really difficult. And and that's something that I'm currently struggling with. And I see um, other people struggling with it as well. Like, how do you address this these things that are happening in a way that makes sense for the poem as opposed to like if you have a big twitter following you could address these things and a lot of people would see it maybe more than in a poem so in you know in what mediums does it make sense to to talk sure. about certain things that's a great interesting question yeah uh, let's leave that hanging, but I want to get back to it because I, in the March 18th, 2019 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker published your poem, Along the East River and in the Bronx, Young Men Were Singing, which you'll read for us shortly. Is there anything you want to tell us about it before you do? Um, the title is taken from Lorca's Ode to Walt Whitman. It was actually kind of funny because a, a friend translated this poem into Spanish. Translated your poem? Yeah. And then he also translated the title into Spanish, which ended up being different than Lorca's original. <laughs> right, line. right, exactly. Uh, so that was that was a little fun. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear it. Uh, here is Ariel Francisco reading his poem, Along the East River and in the Bronx, Young Men Were Singing. Along the East River and in the Bronx, Young Men Were Singing. 
I heard them and I still hear them above the threatening shrieks of police sirens, above the honking horns of morning traffic, above the home crowd cheers of Yankee Stadium, above the school bells and laughter lighting up the afternoon, above the clamoring trudge of the one train and the two and four, five, six, the B and the D, above the ice cream truck's warm jingle, above the stampede of children playing in the street, above the rush of a popped fire hydrant, above the racket of eviction notices, above the whisper of moss and mold moving in, above the high bridge and the 145th Street Bridge, above mothers calling those children to come in for dinner, to come in before it gets dark, to get your ass inside, above them calling a child who may never come home, above the creaking plunge of nightfall and darkness settling in the deepest corners, above the Goodyear blimp circling the stadium, above the seagulls circling the coastal trash, along the East River and in the Bronx, young men are singing, and I hear them, eastbound into eternity, even as morning destars the sky. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts you really don't want to miss this don't don't miss this don't miss it see you soon (laughs) that was along the east river and in the bronx young men were singing by ariel francisco so this Lorca title, I think, has served you well. It's, it's, <laughs> it has this tremendous energy, I think. Uh, and I'm thinking of that era of Lorca, in a way, a poet in New York. Yeah, yeah. So here's a poet seeing more than any one person can see, but at the same time hearing so much that uh, we overlook. Yeah. And I especially love the whisper of moss and mold moving in, <laughs> um, which is ominous, but also the rush of a popped fire hydrant, the racket of eviction notices. There's this real clamor that is Whitman-esque on the one hand and also, I think, very uh, much your own. And uh, tell me about that, uh, how that came about for you, this list, um, this litany. There's a there's a small collection called Ode to Walt Whitman. That's, yes, of that's course. a small collection of, of Lorca's translations um, that my dad had got me for Christmas. I had re- read it before, but I was rereading it again uh, maybe like two years ago. And that line really stood out to me because you don't often read about the Bronx in, in poems. You know, it's there's a lot about New York City and now more about Brooklyn. Um, but it, it really caught <laughs> yeah, my attention. Yeah, there's no Brooklyn that. Bridge in this poem. <laughs> I was like, all right, high bridge. Yeah, yeah different I, bridges. Yeah, yeah. And that's the the neighborhood where I'm from is, is High Bridge in the Bronx. Um, so it was really cool that, you know, a poet like Lorca was writing about the Bronx. And something about that line stood out to me. And I, this kind of litany is not a mode that I ever write in. So I was trying... Was I trying, or maybe this line gave me access to this kind of mm-hmm. uh, other kind of Lorcan mode, maybe? Because I'm very much more of like this James Wright poem, like here I am, you know, the eye standing, observing, 
kind of thinking about things. Uh, and here I, I somehow totally removed... I mean, there's still an eye, but it's a more... It's an ear as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's much more of an ear and not really there, um, like standing there. You know, my typically I would be on the bridge looking out, thinking about things. That, that would be my mode. And here, somehow, this line of Lorca's gave me sort of, maybe permission is the right word, or, or kind of opened my eyes and ears to this other mode that I could get into. Knowing it's a poem of, of home, it also feels like a poem, uh, not of exile quite, but of, of elsewhere. It's like a, a poem that's able to, you know, if it was on a, a drone, dare I say, <laughs> you would be zooming way yeah, up. Yeah. You know, you're zooming incredibly up and then also into people's houses and you can see the moss. You yeah. know? It's Whitman-esque in that way. But I also think the subject matter to me uh, is special in that it, it's speaking to New York, it's thinking about New York, but it also is saying, like, I can list the trains. That's part of uh, the poetry or the lyricism right. of the place. Yeah, yeah. And uh, knowing it that well or, you know, having that specificity, I think, is very important to, you know, so, you know, if you only named, if you're writing about a place <laughs> and, you know, I always said the one train, the two train. Yeah. And I'm talking about the Bronx, there's, you know, my cousins out there be like, hey, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, know? you messed up. Like, yeah. what about my train? Yeah, yeah, Because exactly. I, I had a feeling when you said the two, I was like, the two, you know, <laughs> yeah, goes yeah. right to the Schomburg Center. Yeah, and... And that's what I love about going back to James Wright, that idea of place. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you do recognize the place and that small detail is enough to, to completely pull you into the poem. Well, it's a different kind of pastoral, I think, here. You know, for him, it feels like he's looking at, uh, from the Rust Belt uh, Midwest, looking at nature. Yeah. And here you're, maybe you're doing the same thing. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at a sort of inside out, but it's part of the poem. You know, the right, it's his other poems that you know that he has this other life, you right. know, and, and this eye, which uh, in the poetic tradition, it's very familiar to have someone say, oh, isn't that beautiful out there? Yeah. Uh, but they're writing from dirty London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And here you're sort of saying like, no, I'm, you're not on the bridge, as right. you said, but you're in a place, you're yeah, yeah. of the place. And then from there you go out. Uh, and that ending is just tremendous. Eastbound into eternity even. I mean, three E's, that's not easy. <laughs> and as morning, D stars the sky. And I think that verb is really tremendous because... Of course, sometimes when the city, it feels de-starred already, but there is something there that you uh, are noting, this change and yeah. this undoing, let's call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's something I picked up. I can't remember the poem off the top, but uh, de-stars is something I picked up from Paul Salon. Ah, don't, you don't have to tell all your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's great at like, yeah. he puts words together like no one else, I think. But uh, this de-starring isn't anyone else's now. Right, yeah. No, he, <laughs> he can't say anything about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yours now. You've, you've made it happen. That's so powerful. I wonder about translation. Yeah. And, and how translation plays into your work as a whole, but also specifically here, because you, you mentioned this great effect of translating something back yeah. into its native language. Um, something I actually ended up doing when there was these uh, Langston Hughes poems that were only in Uzbek, um, and I ended up translating them from, you know, a crib back into English, and then I found one of the poems later, because they had <laughs> been lost. Um, and I was like, what? You know, and I was like, ah, I got pretty close. You know, yeah. it's a strange thing to imitate someone you love. But you're coming from a different place. You translate from the Spanish, is that right? Yeah, or? Spanish to English. Yeah. yeah, and how's that changed your work? And uh, is there some of that in this poem? Um, 
there might be a little bit of it uh, in this poem uh, coming from Lorca too. Again, that that kind of repetition, uh, and it, it's it's a different kind of lyricism that mm. that it brings to me. I think as opposed to um, like just English, like writing in relation to something in Spanish. Yeah. Uh, not even translating, but like having a a Spanish poem or a Spanish poet uh, in my head as I'm doing it gives yeah. gives a different kind of lyricism. Which again is why I think this poem took the shape that it did, which you know is very much different. Um, so do you feel like the Spanish lyricism, as you put it, is that lurking behind this poem? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, yeah, at, at least for me, um, because with, without that Lorca, even if I had this line, if maybe the sure. line was someone else's, the, I think the poem would have come differently. Because mm-hmm. um, this kind of lineation, this kind of repetition is not of my English. I don't know if that makes sense. Even Even in like a very lyrical mode, I would never think to go there um but in spanish it feels more natural it does yeah yeah and again even though you know i didn't write it in spanish but there was some somehow there was spanish in my brain as as i was writing this um if that makes sense Uh, it does actually (laughs) Uh, and do you uh write in spanish not too much uh just emails asking people for permission to translate their their relatives or you know parents <laughs> and uh, i mean did you ever think of writing in spanish oh yeah it... yeah i really want to um it's a separate project for you it is yeah it would be it would be very different um but i i really want to try it i i can read in spanish really really well now it's gotten a lot better because of translation um but for example i still have trouble translating from english to spanish so there are like some technical things i was always I spoke it well enough to get by in high school and college, you know, for an easy A. I never had to pay attention. <laughs> so there are a lot of technical things that I'm, I'm missing um, yeah. if I were to try to write it. But I definitely, that's something that I really want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you speak to uh, how translation sometimes is a one-way street for us. You know, we try to run translations when we can. And uh, I, I think it's a very important part of the tradition. Yeah. You know, and certainly, as we were talking about, it changed Wright's poetry and those deep image poets of the 60s. They, it changed their work. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a recent effort you see where people are trying to think about translation, how, do, you know, how much poorer we've been for abandoning it, as culturally speaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, what an interesting moment it is to to talk about uh, these different languages we all uh, hear and, right. and maybe don't all have but but can learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's vastly important. I mean, I've been the the last few months I've been reading poetry almost only in Spanish. So not even in translation, but kind of finding books that don't exist in English Um more part of it to look for more things to try and translate into English, but also just to have that in my brain more often and just kind of comprehend things in Spanish and see if that, I don't think it'll oppose the English in my brain. I keep talking about my brain as if there's more than one, right? But <laughs> yeah, hopefully they, they mix together yeah. and, and create some kind of new brain. Um, and I've been trying to learn German too. Wow. Which those are the two languages I've been translated into is Spanish really? and German. Oh, wow. And, uh, the reason I knew that the German was working is uh, I traveled in Germany with uh, the translator, and he would read. We would trade off who would read which <laughs> first, and he read this uh, one of my poems, and people laughed at the right places. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I, I don't speak German, <laughs> but it was amazing to to see that. You know, that's great. Um, and, and this kind of I don't want to say it's a lost art because it's still an art. I'm interested in that idea of translating not just from language to language, but from mode to mode. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what happens in your poem. 
uh, there there is this you know before it gets dark to get your ass inside. There's these are different registers, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I wouldn't like one without the other in the poem. The poem is invested in all of you know because it's so ecstatic and embracing. Yeah, I think it's invested in uh, these different. Tones is after after all said you know they were singing they right. weren't simply speaking or or talk you know this you know and song is one of those things that almost doesn't need translation we yeah. dance to and listen to <laughs> different musics all the time yeah tell me about what's next for you and and what you're working on um, I'm working on a couple of translation projects well, I'm working on a lot of things my second book is set to come out in April from Borough Press. Um, What's it called? It's called A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship. Uh, so it's a big Florida book about uh, growing up there, how much I hate it, uh, in a hyperbolic kind of way, um, and also how it's sinking and no one seems to be doing anything about it. Uh, and so, it's so, a very so you book. were uh, from the Bronx but grew up in Florida? Yeah, I moved to Florida when I was small. Um, I lived in Orlando until I was 11, and then I moved to Miami and lived there from 2001 until last year. Yeah. So Miami's you mentioned a- exile earlier, and that's how I felt <laughs> growing up in Florida. Living, living so in so we have a, a Bronx poem, but you have Florida poems now. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Florida poems. Not quite as uh, <laughs> celebrating. <laughs> oh, wow. But it's it's got a weird kind of love to it. Yeah, um, sure. I described it uh, to someone recently as... Um, you know, when a, a teenager yells out their stepfather, you're not my real dad. That's that's how I feel about Florida, and I feel like that's the energy of that book. It's it's not totally sincere, but in that moment, it's very Sure, much yeah, like, it's passionate. Yeah. Well, I'm eager to read it. Um, and then what are your translation projects you mentioned? Uh, I'm translating this poet. I'm going to butcher his name maybe, but it's Jacques Vieux Renau, who was uh, born in Haiti but grew up in the Dominican Republic. Uh, so he wrote in Spanish. Uh, and he was killed during the Civil War in 65. Uh, so he was just 23 years old. Um, but he left behind, you know, about 100 plus pages of poems that are just like really, really incredible. Um, he writes a lot about, he makes reference to his homeland a lot in those poems. And he he never mentions really either country. He's kind of trying to reconcile, you know, the the entirety of the island. Yeah. Um, and the, the collection is called Poet of One Island. Um, and it's just it's just really fascinating. And and they're they're not translated yet. No, there's a couple. Um, I've, I think I've only found like three online. Yeah, um, that's but not, yeah. I've I've got the whole thing in English. If any <laughs> publishers are listening, yeah, I mean that sounds tremendous. <laughs> yeah, it's I have a few coming out. And what is uh, the well. um, what is the tone of it? Um, it's very, it's very very sort of hopeful, but with you know this kind of impending. Um, sort of falling apart. Uh, so, you know, there, there's very much, again, he's writing of, like, trying to reconcile. Um, but little by little, you see his support of, like, the revolutionaries grow stronger and stronger through the poems. And then after the poem ends, he actually joins the fight and, and is killed in the fight. And it's really, you know, there's, there's a huge history of violence from the Dominican Republic against Haiti, and it becomes really interesting to have this kind of Haitian-born poet fighting for... Dominican independence, you know, for a country who probably wouldn't have fought for him. Just the his whole story, but the poems as well, it's it's all in there, and it's really, really fascinating. And while we're, I mean, geez, I look at his poems, and I look at the poems I was writing when I was 23, and it's like, it's wild. 
Well, I can't wait to read and, and see more. And I love this description you have. I think you said hopeful, but there's this impending, I would almost call it doom. And I, I yeah. feel like that that's sort of coursing through your poem in a way, <laughs> um, but also through poetry right now. I, I see a lot of poems that are wrestling with our times, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing more from you about yeah. it. Thank you. Ariel, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Along the East River and in the Bronx, Young Men Were Singing by Ariel Francisco, as well as James Wright's by a lake in Minnesota, can be found on newyorker.com. Above the River, James Wright's Complete Poems was published in 1992. Ariel Francisco's new book, A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship, is forthcoming in 2020. Thanks so much. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast, by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.